People should be ecstatic about our women's team. The base salary of Aaron Best, Bobby Houck, and Jeff Choate is almost the gap between the salary of Paul Petrino and Dan Hawkins, number two paid coach in the conference. The ceiling problem of our youth, we had a floor problem that was manu- that was artificially manufactured. And now this is a subjective hot take. Tribe from the North, brave and bold, welcome to Tubs at the Club, the official, unofficial podcast of your University of Idaho Vandals. I'm your host for today, Brian, and on our episode, we're going to cover the conclusion of the men's basketball season, the women's basketball season, which is not over as of our recording right now on March 26th. We have news about the football team, because spring football has begun. Football season never truly ends if you're a college football fan and for Vandals, because of how bad last season was, we're in the market for some news. We have that for you guys. Again, uh, courtesy of Colton Clark from the Lewiston Tribune, friend of the podcast. But before any of that, we have to go over some details about the approval of the Idaho Central Credit Union Arena or the ICCU Arena that's the basketball-only facility that we've talked about on this podcast a couple times. If you're a Vandal fan or a Vandal alum for any time greater than the last four days, the, the need for a basketball-only facility has not been news to you. It's been something people have been talking about for decades. The State Board of Education gave unanimous approval to begin the bidding and construction of the ICCU Arena earlier in March. Now, there are some caveats that we need to go over, but they aren't really concerning. In fact, most of the caveats are positive. Um, The breaking ground on the arena is contingent upon approval of the State Board of Education's executive director in consultation with the new university president, a president who has not yet been named, meaning the new president will have some input in what is going to happen with this facility, likely before he or she is officially our president, or likely before the contract for whoever is named our president officially begins. This is good news for us. Um, I, I really see no way in this is, that this is negative, because one, it's not not at all something new that we've needed a basketball-only facility. Idaho does not have a rich basketball history, which means we have additional obstacles to get top recruits to our campus. This new arena, this new facility is going to benefit both the men's and the women's basketball teams. No question. It's going to, the moment it's done, likely be one of the top two facilities in the entire conference. And based off the renderings, it's going to be a gorgeous addition to the campus. All that being said, there there are a couple pieces of information that might be concerning to some fans or at least pieces of information that whether you're a Vandal alum or whether you just listen to this podcast because it's Big Sky content that relates directly to fundraising for these bigger facilities that I want to touch on. Now, the first is that students will cover one third of the projected cost of the facility. This is where the news begins to feel a little bit odd or a little bit off because the projected one-third cost that students will cover is $18 million. 
That's going to take place over the course of 35 years. And that $18 million is going to be collected by doubling a current student fee for facilities or facility use from $15 to $30. But that 15 to 30 is per semester. So it's actually a double if you're a full-time student from $30 to $60. The $18 million number is where I want to stop and talk about the facility itself for a little bit, because based off news we have given you guys that we gathered from the University of Idaho's website, the projected cost of this arena was going to be $46 million. I don't think you need to have an advanced math degree to put together that $18 million is a little bit more than a third of $46 million. And that is where we get to what feels like maybe a discrepancy in reporting based off of the information we've given, based off the information we've had access to. According to an article in the Moscow Pullman Daily News, and according to reporting from Chad Kripe from Idaho Statesman, the true cost of this facility is going to be closer to $60 million, not the $46 million that we have cited, again, based off the university's website, based off the university's fundraising figures, which they posted. Now, the reason for the discrepancy is that it is going to take time for the university to accrue all the money that is needed for this project to be seen through. At present, the university has $16 million in cash that's been co- collected. Now, the university has also posted that they have $40 million accounted for, which always sounds like the university has $40 million on hand, and it turns out they don't. Now, is that misleading or is it not? Well, it's actually not misleading if you understand the details of where this money is coming from. The ICCU arena is being financed overwhelmingly through private donations, um, which is to say the state of Idaho is not giving a contribution to the University of Idaho to see this project through. That is different from how some universities are able to finance their arenas or their buildings on campus. For example, Viking Pavilion for Portland State University, the building that opened this year, it cost $52 million total for that building to be to become a facility that the Portland State Vikings could use. $24 million of that funding came from state bonds, which still means the university did have $28 million it had to raise. But if the University of Idaho was given $24 million or close to half the projected cost of the arena, the actual cost of the facility would be lower than the $60 million we are referencing, which this came through reporting from the Idaho Statesman and Moscow Pullman Daily News. The, what's going to take the actual cost of $60 million is because the university is going to need to borrow $29 million to begin and finish the project. That is going to translate to a cost of around $800,000 per year in lost interest due to borrowing from internal investment funds, which is to say the university is going to borrow from itself to pay for the facility But because it is going to be borrowing money from investments, those investments will not be accruing the interest that they otherwise should, which is why the university is projected to lose $800,000 per year. And if it takes 35 years to get all the funding from the student source we referenced earlier, 
That's a lot of years of lost revenue, which is how we get to the $60 million price tag. It's not just the cost of the actual building. It is the cost of not having money involved in investments that the university already has. Now, is this um, good news or bad news overall? I mean, I think having the facility is important. I think if you are a Vandal alum, or if you're an alum of another school, uh, because I have, I do know that there are listeners to this podcast who are fans of other Big Sky schools. It's good to know that sometimes the published figures for fundraising for some of these buildings are not what the actual figures will be. You know, I, I did some research about, okay, so, so why else will this take a while to raise money for? And, you know, the Idaho CCU uh, arena is funded through, through private donations, which in addition to the student fee that is going to come in for 35 years, some of the donors who make bigger donations, even though they are wealthy, do not necessarily have the entire donation which they sign up for on hand. So for example, let's say you are a wealthy donor who pledges to donate $40,000 to the facility. That does not mean that you have $40,000 in cash that you can give them at this moment. What it translates to for a lot of donors is over the course of a certain number of years, they will give X amount of dollars that they pledge. So in this, in this example, it might be that for five years, a person will donate $8,000 every year. Now these pledges are binding. These are not the figures that the university fundraising uses to get to 40 million. This isn't the type of thing that a person can simply walk out of. It's essentially close to a contract, but a downside of having to privately fund the arena as we have had to is that if you do not, if you're not Ohio state and you don't have millions uh, of donors, or if you don't have in the high thousands of very wealthy people who can donate large sums of money, it's going to take more time to raise the money. And for the university, the longer it takes to start this this facility, the more expensive construction costs will likely be. So at some point, they just need to be able to break ground. For us, the goal is to break ground before the summer or towards the end of the spring term. The bidding process itself is expected to take 90 days. And after the bidding process is done, that's when the construction should begin. At this point, the and this is per Idaho Statesman figures, the arena is set to hold 4,000 seats with a max capacity of 4,200. That is different from the initial plans of 6,000 seats at a projected cost of $30 million. Per Chuck Staben, the initial estimate of 6,000 seats for $30 million once the university started looking at actual plans and actual bids for what this could look like, it just became clear that there was no world where a six a six thousand dollar facility, a six sorry six thousand person facility was going to be able to be built for thirty million dollars, which is why we see we have seen the cost go up. But overall, this is this is a story that is mostly over. We are now waiting to hear what the ultimate bid is, and we are waiting for the day the ground will break. But if you are a Vandal fan who's been wanting a new facility, this is a good day. 
If you are a Vandal fan who thinks that too much money is spent on facilities, this should be a good day again because all of the money that has been raised, it is going to be used. And the longer it takes to begin breaking ground, the more this facility is going to cost. So everyone wins with the facility being built earlier. We will keep you updated when we have news about when we are actually breaking ground, when we have projected dates for the facility to finally be done. And this will change the face of the of the campus a little bit. You know, if you're going to football games this year, the construction should begin. And that lawn in front of the Kibbe Dome, which is where this facility is going to be, you know, that's not going to be accessible for tailgating anymore, which, you know, will we'll survive. There is a parking lot we can still use. But that's going to change how the university is used. It is going to change some parking questions um, for the university because it's being that that facility is being built right next to the law school. I know that there's a good chance that law school parking will be monopolized by part of the construction. That's not something that's been reported. This That's just me putting dots together because of how close the law school is to the university. And that's a minor point. But the bigger point is that the the campus of the university itself is changing. I think that overall is going to be positive. And I think if you're a fan of the Vandal basketball teams, and I mean teams plural, um, we need legs up in recruiting. This is going to do nothing but help our already strong women's program because now we have a better facility to sell women, to, to sell potential students on in addition to our strong program. If you are hoping our men's team can turn around and begin to finally build a winning tradition, and I mean an actual winning tradition, not a tradition of we have a solid regular season, but we go to these tertiary basketball tournaments. We need as many advantages as we can possibly get. And having a top in the league facility for us, that could be a game changer. Shifting over to football. And this is an area I really think people should be excited about. Um, Spring ball has begun. And we talked earlier on the podcast about news that Paul Petrino had said he was going to treat his son, Mason Petrino, junior Colton Richardson, and redshirt freshman Dekel Nair. He was going to treat all three of those guys as though they were potential starting quarterbacks for our team. Per Colton Clark, it appears Coach Petrino is doing exactly what he said. Um, Colton Clark posted an article, I'm reading this directly from the Lewiston Tribune, that cites that during spring ball, Mason Petrino, Colton Richardson, and Nikhil Nair all took equal reps during the Vandals opening practice Monday at the Kibbe Dome because all three of them have their benefits and their costs. Um, some parts look great, some parts did not. But the big news is Coach Petrino says they all have a chance to start. And he's also giving all three guys equal reps at this point. Now we're early into spring ball, but if you followed the football team last year, you know, our season high, I'm not counting Western New Mexico division two team where we scored 56 against division one opponents. That's FBS and FCS Idaho scored 31 points. That was our season high. We hit that number twice. Five teams in the big sky averaged better than 31 per game. Our offense was just too weak last year, too predictable and too tepid for us to have a prayer of being good. 
Now that's before I factor in that we had one of the worst defenses in the league as well. And the defense has to improve if we're going to be good. But one of the frustrations from last year, and this was even cited multiple times throughout the year by coach Paul Petrino, he had that infamous press conference where he made a reference to part of our fan base being, I quote, Mason haters. Part of the frustration last year was that everyone watched our defense. We saw our defense get torched by teams like Idaho State and Montana and Eastern Washington and UC Davis. And it was clear that the recruits we had were simply not up to big sky competition or elite big sky competition. There was nothing else to interpret. They kept getting torched because they were not good enough. The frustration was that our offense was not strong enough to counteract how bad our defense was. And it felt like our offense at times was needlessly soft because we had, and we still have strong wide receivers. We had good tight ends. We had some of the better running backs in the league, or at least top five running backs in the league. But we had the theoretical platoon of Mason Petrino and Colton Richardson, where we all watched that was that was not a 50-50 platoon whatsoever. It was executed in a way early on where both the players seemed like they didn't get much rhythm at all in terms of reliable playing time. But then as the season progressed a little bit, it, it seemed like Mason was getting... And now this is a subjective hot take. This is the Brian opinion, not necessarily Tubbs of the club opinion. When I watched and when I talked to fans, a lot of fans seemed frustrated that it seemed like Mason Petrino had a much longer leash than Colton Richardson did. And then Colton Richardson had injury issues, which we'll get into from the article in a second. But the frustration point in short was that we knew we had a bad defense. We knew we had, we knew offense should be a relative strength but it seemed like we were needlessly bad at quarterback, which handicapped some of our team's best players. Now, according to Colton Clark's article, Mason Petrino cited a two-year-long shoulder injury as being a problem for why, when you watched uh, Petrino play, you could see that he didn't really get too much on his throws. I absolutely accept that Mason had that shoulder injury. I, I'm not, I, I have no evidence whatsoever. I have no sourcing whatsoever to contradict what he said. Now, I will say that throughout most of the year, Mason's shoulder was not something that was ever cited that I can recall throughout anyone's reporting or through any press conferences. But uh, Mason Petrino claims that he had a two-year-long shoulder injury, and that was part of why the offense was not able to get to what in this article uh, Mason Petrino cited as second and third level aspects. Now that what that translates to is our offense had no ability to have an intermediate to deep ball at all. And that's a, that's a point that needs to be focused on when people were critical of the quarterback choices last year. It wasn't that we felt we should be lobbing these 60-yard passes all the time. It was that we were watching the game and we saw that pass plays beyond 10 yards did not exist in our offense. And professional coaches who devote their lives to scouting other teams and putting their best teams on the field, if we as fans were able to see that, those coaches saw that too. And that was part of why our offense was as weak as it was. Um, so the the potential news we have here is Petrino, Mason Petrino, said he was injured last year, um, and that was part of why we he had the limitations he did. 
maybe that's true. We're going to see. Now, I remember watching him as a sophomore, and I didn't see much difference between him as a sophomore and Mason as a junior. But in the article, Mason claims that and claims is probably too negative a term. Mason states this is a two year long injury, which would date back to not last season, but the season before. Now, if the injury dates back that long, I have no idea why the rehab choice is to rehab this season and not last and not during last off season. But that's the information we're being given. That's what Colton Clark's reporting states. And those are those are the pieces we have to understand. Now, what I want to connect that to real quick is circling back to the quote unquote Mason haters, which no fan I knew was a Mason hater. Maybe there were some trolls, uh, maybe on campus. There were some people who were let's to put it diplomatically, not cool about the, the situation that's possible. But uh, in the world I inhabit, which is the world of Idaho alums, I didn't hear people being Mason haters. I, I heard people not believing that we could possibly be that limited at quarterback completely. And I, I will say that the points that the Mason haters had last year, which was that our offense was limited and that our offense did not throw beyond 10 yards when Mason was playing. Mason Petrino agreed with all of the quote unquote Mason haters in that article from Colton Clark. Now that's not uh, to paint any sort of negative picture of, of Mason himself. Mason's obviously a hard worker. And what he was saying is he agreed with the, with fans we were seeing that they never threw passes beyond 10 yards. His rationale for that or why that happened was because of a shoulder injury that lingered throughout the year. Now, news and relating to Colton Richardson. Uh, Richardson missed the last five games of the 2018 season with a combination of concussion issues and what turns out to be a wrist injury, which might might have been something that contributed to some of the fumble difficulties that Richardson had last year. Overall, Colton finished last season with five touchdowns and four interceptions through for 434 yards. But for fans who paid attention last year, Colton really didn't play that much at all after the Idaho state game. He had a real strong game against Idaho state and we more or less didn't see him for any sort of extended play after Idaho state. It turns out that now we knew there were injury issues with him. We knew that there were concussion issues with him as well. Um, I believe he also had just illness that took place. So it was kind of a confluence of unfortunate things that took place with Colton Richardson, which all of these things are cited in Colton Clark's article. Um, but Richardson's the other quarterback we've seen. He's the other known quantity that we have to assess. And, you know, Richardson was able to, to stretch the field much more. But, you know, four touchdowns, five touchdowns, four interceptions relative to the small amount he played. Obviously, um, that is not ideal to have that kind of touchdown interception ratio, though. I do think people should keep in mind that. Though we don't want our quarterback throwing interceptions, though, in football, we don't want turnovers. That's kind of a brain dead duh thing. When a team goes three and out and then the opposing team scores after a punt, that functionally is the same as throwing an interception and the other team scoring. And in some ways it's worse because more time goes off the clock while the other team drives down the field. And then our team has less time to come back, uh, which is that 
I think that uh, fans need to keep in mind that we don't want a bunch of turnovers from our quarterback, but just because we don't see a turnover show up in the box score, that that doesn't mean that play from a quarterback isn't indicative of essentially a, a turnover taking place. You know, that was the difficulty with Mason was our offense was too weak. Our offense was too predictable. We punted way too many times. An issue with Colton was he turned the ball over himself too many times and fumbling, fumbling the ball, intercepting the ball. Um, those do have a change in momentum that are a problem, but it's not as though we didn't have some other problems from our other quarterback who played. This wouldn't be a competition if there weren't at some level an acknowledgement of the fact that our quarterback play last year was simply not good enough. And the and two of the three faces that we have coming back, we've seen before. My hope is that Colton's in better shape. Um, that's something Colton cited himself in the article from Colton Clark, that Richardson does need to be in better shape. He, he admitted that. He needs to be able to make better decisions. He needs to understand the playbook better. And apparently understanding the playbook is actually a pretty big gap between Mason and Colton Richardson and freshman Nikel Nair, who we're going to get to. Um, Nikel Nair, based off of Col- what Colton Clark said, is Nair has an arm closer to that of Colton Richardson, but he's athletic and he can move around. Um, in some ways, if you're a Vandal fan, our world would probably be great if Nikel Nair steps up and is good enough to win the job outright because then we'd have a guy in place for four years. So I suppose that should be the thing that most people are rooting for. If that scenario doesn't happen, I think Vandal fans need to hope that Colton Richardson is the guy who steps up to win the job because he would give us a much more diverse offense than we would have with Mason Petrino because we've seen Mason Petrino over a couple years. And if he is back, obviously we'll support him on the podcast. Obviously we'll go to the games. We'll cheer when he does well. We'll acknowledge when he does well. We want him to do well. But for Idaho to be a team that is competing with the the top of the conference and the Big Sky is a top-tier FCS conference, we need our defense to get much better. That's understood. There is no world where we can have an awful defense and be competitive with some of the better teams that we're playing. But we also need our offense to be a lot stronger. And for us, that kind of begins and ends at the quarterback because our offensive line didn't surrender a ton of sacks. Our running backs did well relative to how often the box was stacked. Our wide receivers did a good job last year of creating yards after the catch. All of those strengths are amplified if we can stretch the field. And I'm not even talking about throwing deep balls like Idaho State's Tanner Goller did last year. I'm talking about being able to throw passes between 12 and 20 yards. Those are not necessarily deep plays in the big sky. Like if you watched Eastern Washington throughout the playoffs, a lot of their deeper plays were not these 60-yard bombs. They're 20-yard passes where once the player, once the wide receiver catches the ball, he has one guy to beat to stretch that, that play. Or the wide receiver's already beaten his his corner. And he just needs to catch the ball at the, you know, at the mark that'd be 20 yards away from the line of scrimmage. But he has the corner turned. He has open field after the catch. If we can do that, our offense is a completely different animal. Suddenly, if our offense can be explosive, we we can talk about, can this team compete for maybe sneaking into the playoffs? You know, I'm not going to jump out on a limb and say that we're going to do that yet. But this quarterback thing is something to watch. And fans should, one, keep in mind that 
the Idaho football team has agreed with all the bullet by bullet points of people who are frustrated about uh, Mason Petrino playing last year, not just because he was playing, but because of the limitations that he brought. That was something that was written in this article. That was something that as fans, it was frustrating to feel like that was not being directly addressed or acknowledged anywhere. The team's acknowledging that now. That was a problem. You weren't wrong to think that one of our big problems last year was having physical limitations at the most important offensive position. And it looks like we do have a real competition going now in spring ball where we have three guys getting equal reps. Now we're going to see what that actually looks like. You know, the spring silver and gold game is on April 19th. That's a Friday in Moscow. I know that I'll be there. I know that I want to see what that split looks like in terms of in the spring ball game. Are we going to see a real timeshare of a third, a third, a third, or are we going to see a nominal timeshare? Like last year during the football season, I felt that we had a nominal timeshare between Mason and Colton. It's a real question for us. Is this going to be a real split or are we going to see a split acknowledged as existing, but it more or less is in favor of one person over another? We're going to see. We have time. I continue to follow Colton Clark. He's from the Lewiston Tribune. Follow him on Twitter, man. He's the guy who gives a lot of day-by-day updates about what practice actually looks like. We're going to be following him. We'll give you his news, and we're going to continue to cover what the football team looks like. But that's all we have from spring ball. Keep in mind, if you are, if you can travel, it's helpful to actually go to the silver and gold game on April 19th. Admission, I believe, is free. And that's our earliest look at what we have on our roster. Other teams are already starting, you know, University of Montana. Spring ball is a huge deal. Montana State, they've already announced that Troy Anderson, their quarterback last year, who was converted linebacker. He's no longer a converted linebacker. He's just a linebacker. We have actual news that takes place in some of these spring spring games and spring football. Idaho State kind of has a quarterback battle going on where former Vandal, Vandal Gunner Amos is understood as the current leader, theoretically, to start for the team, but it's unclear whether he will be the starter when the season rolls around. There's some compelling stuff throughout the conference to look at. And for Idaho, one of the things that stands out, we already talked about today a bunch about our quarterback, but it is atypical for us. It is atypical for any other team in the big sky to have a clear starter from the season before and have that guy not be the understood starter right now. It was a story in Montana State because they had a to triage for their quarterback last year. In Idaho, it's a different story. And we're going to see how that develops. But to me, that is the story to follow as spring ball ends. And then we get into our summer break waiting to hear, waiting for the actual football season to start. But we'll keep you posted as that story evolves. Now next, we're going to give a wrap up for basketball season, which ended for the university of Idaho in the first round of the big sky conference tournament in Boise. We lost to Montana state 71 to 75. So the good news for us, our final game was a close game. Idaho was understood as essentially a buy for whoever played us in the Big Sky Tournament, so at least having a competitive game was good news. Cam Tyson scored 17 for us, including 12 quick points to keep the game close. Trayvon Allen led us with 21 points, 6 rebounds, and then Jared Rodriguez chipped in 18 points and 7 rebounds. I'm not going to go through a big recap of that game because it was a little bit of, a little bit of time ago. NCAA Tournament is through Week 1, so... 
we can suffice it to say that the Vandals lost and their season was over. I want to go through a little bit of wrapping up what the season looks like and what it should mean. Overall, our men finished at 5 and 27 on the year, including 3 and 26 against Division 1 opponents. We finished 2 and 18 in the conference. We beat Eastern Washington and Sacramento State in the conference. Both of those were home games. Our lone road win came at North Dakota. So we finished 2 and 11 versus D1 teams at home, 1 and 13 versus D1 teams on the road. And we were 0-3 overall in neutral site games, including, sorry, this is separate. The the three neutral site losses did include what I think is the low point of the basketball season, which is losing to Northwest Nazarene. Now, you might think losing the exhibition to LCSC at home was the low point. I disagree because that game didn't count on our record. North Northwest Nazarene. That did. So we had to bear the evidence of that throughout the rest of the season. We had 17 total double-digit losses, and our team recorded zero Division I double-digit wins. If you're curious whether this was just a pretty bad year for Idaho or a historically bad year, the answer is it was a historically bad year. You know, I went through... The conference, the Big Sky Conference website keeps archive stats dating back to the 2001-2002 season. I combed through to look at scoring margin for, for teams through that time frame. Scoring margin is a pretty simple stat that you can, it's one of the best stats to look at if you're only going to look at one stat to tell you what a team is. Scoring margin is the one to look at. Or if you're going to look at one stat and say, hey, what's the most predictive stat that I don't need a math degree to be able to explain or understand? It's scoring margin. Average scoring margin is simply how much you win or lose by on an average game. In Big Sky Play, so this stats reference Big Sky games only, none of the buy games where teams can get blown out, and none of the NAIA or NCCAA or Division II teams that you know Idaho picked up a couple wins against. Looking at only Big Sky stats, here are some teams comparable to the University of Idaho from this year's Vandals. 2004-2005, Idaho State had a negative 10.4 scoring margin. In 2007-2008, Sac State had a negative 13.1 scoring margin. In 2008-2009, that same Sac State had a negative 16.4 scoring margin. In 2011-12, NAU had a negative 13.4 margin. 2013-14, Southern Utah had a negative 13.1. NAU was back at us again in 2015-16 with a negative 11 scoring margin. Southern Utah also had a negative 11.7 scoring margin. Both those teams are from the 2015-16 season. And last season, the 2017-18, NAU had a negative 11.7. Those are a collection of the worst of the worst in the big sky heading into this year. Where did our Vandals sit in that hierarchy? Second to worst. We had a negative 14.2 scoring margin. So only Sac State in 2008-2009 was worse. Quick question for you guys, or quick question some people might have is, hey, how quickly did most of these teams rebound? Almost none of them rebounded immediately. 
Idaho State has been pretty rough for a while, and a decade back, um, the the Bengals are still looking for stability. Sac State had their best season ever in 2014-15, but if your reference point is how long did it take them to recover from the 2007-2008 or 2008-2009 teams, that took four years. Southern Utah this season is fine is is finally rebounding from their and when I say rebounding I mean having a respectable season where they finish around 500. Southern Utah took them five seasons to get back to being okay. Northern Arizona is still not okay. Northern Arizona had a negative scoring margin this year. And that brings us to Idaho. One of the stories that we we talked about here as well, and we acknowledged that some of it was valid, is that this team was bad because they were young. Were we bad because we were young? Yeah, that definitely put a ceiling on our, our team. Um, that put a ceiling on how good we were going to be. But if you listen to this podcast, you know that the biggest critiques I had, which I'm not going to go over in depth, I'm just going to touch on, was that our team was guard heavy. Our skill was perimeter oriented. Don Verlin did not adjust his offense to the skill. Now, is it, is it an unreasonable expectation for a coach to shift what he's comfortable doing based off his talent? It absolutely is. We saw it happen this year at university of Montana, their leading score for most of the season was senior post Jamara Co. He was, he's a six foot eight center, by far the best back-to-the-basket player in the Big Sky, Travis DeCure, since he has been at University of Montana, whether it was with Martin Breunig in his first couple of years or now with Jamara Coe, prefers to play inside-out basketball. The last Big Sky game Jamara Coe played was when Idaho beat, when Idaho got killed by Montana in Missoula, 59-100. to A Coe didn't play again after that. What did Travis DeCure do in response to losing his rock in the middle? He started five guards. He he went all in on a perimeter-oriented offense. He did that more than halfway through the entire season and about halfway through the conference season. So do good coaches adjust what they do schematically based off the talent? They absolutely do, and we saw it this year in the conference. Did Don Verlin do that? Absolutely not. We ran the same double post offense for most of the season. We had a couple, we had a couple instances where we did remove our non-scoring post clogging the paint, but overwhelmingly we didn't play faster pace and we did not adjust what the offense looks like at a moment by moment or possession by possession basis. And we played awful. So not only did we have the ceiling problem of our youth, we had a floor problem that was manu that was artificially manufactured, but the season's over. So we should be looking for some positives but I don't really see any positives right now. We, we actually just received some pretty bad news for the program. This is based off of Evan Daniels from Fox Sports. He recently reported that Cameron Tyson, our freshman, our second leading scorer, the guy who hit the second most threes in the entire big sky and put a bracket around that. The only reason he hit the second most threes is because Tyler Hall, a senior at Montana State, who's, who's done now, he's the leading scorer in the history of the conference, he led the he he hit his mark as a scorer based solely off being an elite shooter. He was not a strong off the dribble player. He didn't have a post game. 
he just shot a lot of contested threes and made a good amount of them. He was a transcendently for big sky play. He was a transcendently good shooter. That's the only reason why Cam Tyson did not lead the league in made threes. Cam Tyson's gone, or he's at least reopened his recruiting. We have no news on where he's going to land. But this is a huge blow to what Vandal fans thought we would be looking at in the future. You know what? The big news I thought we had is that, you know, we've got Jared Rodriguez, who he looks like a future kind of double-double machine, a new version of Steven Madison, one of the better recent players in University of Idaho history. Now, he's still here. You know, he's a six foot eight, inside-outside, hybrid, jack-of-all-trades kind of player. The future of Idaho basketball looked like, you know what, we have two all-Big Sky-level players on our team. We got Jared Rodriguez and Cam Tyson. We'll get pieces to fit around those two. But in terms of who's going to put up points for us, we've got that on lockdown for the next three years. And it turns out we don't. We lost maybe the best shooter I've ever seen at the University of Idaho. We, uh, Cam Tyson set the scoring record for a freshman in Idaho from the moment he was here. He was a great shooter. He had some off-the-dribble limitations, but he's a freshman. You, you can expect that while he may never become an elite off-the-dribble player, he would certainly grow in that regard. But it looks like we're not going to see that happen. Now, we have no reporting as to why he's leaving, although I, I, I think it's safe to say when you have a season as bad as the one we did, there will be casualties there'll be collateral damage beyond what you might just project and for us the big bad the bad news we're looking at now cam tyson's gone that future big sky player we thought we had now we've still got one jared rodriguez it's great news that we have jared rodriguez coming back but we've got a huge hole in the vandal future to fill and that's based off of a five win season we also learned and this was confirmed by jeff goodman from stadium sports that Gino West is transferring. That is a little bit less of a surprise to me. You know, Gino West didn't play at all through the last handful of games, probably about the last four or five games of the season. That was due to an ele- what, what I read as an injury, a facial injury, uh, not an alleged injury. He, he, he did have a facial injury, which was why he did not play. But he did not look like he fit into long-term plans for the University of Idaho basketball team. Um, he certainly wasn't going to supplant Cam Tyson at the time. He he kind of proved throughout the season that he is certainly not a starting point guard in the big sky. He has red shirt in his pocket uh, that he can use to transfer. So he has declared he will transfer. Um, in addition to that, Idaho has around, this is per verbalcommits.com, Idaho has around 12 offers out to junior college type of players right now. Now, a lot of those are likely contingent offers because we don't have 12 roster spots. But one of the things I talked about throughout this year was we should expect there to be roster turnover. All schools have some non-graduation roster turnover because guys guys leave the program because they're dissatisfied with their role. Some people have problems with the coaches or you know, some coaches do just leave and take new jobs and players don't want to play for the new coach who didn't recruit them. There's a lot of reasons why college players can leave a program and we should expect year to year for there to be some transition or for there to be some turnover in that regard. Idaho hasn't had, let's say this cascade of announced transfers, but we've lost two names already. 
two names that Cam Tyson's the huge one. Um, I think Geno West is replaceable. I really, I hope Geno West does well, well wherever he goes, but he didn't look like he fit in very well with what we run in Idaho. And I don't, I just talked about how I felt like Idaho did not adjust to their talent. That is not wholly Geno West's fault whatsoever. That it seemed like he did not fit with what our offense was doing. But I expect between now and the start of next season, we might see a couple more names transfer out. I don't have intelligence on this other than to just watch and look at pieces and how they fit. I wouldn't be shocked if Xavier Smith is a name. He still has his red shirt. Um, he's a sophomore, so he has two years to market himself. I wouldn't be shocked if he was a guy um, because it, we have signed another point guard. Trayvon Allen looks like he's a starter for next year. I wouldn't be floored at all if Gene, if Xavier Smith decided he didn't like what the Vandal, what the landscape of Vandal basketball looked like. Um, hasn't said anything. This is just my speculation. Uh, Cassius Smith's Francisco had a lot of injury issues. Um, I am curious whether he'll be back in, at the program. There are rumors on message boards about some serious injury issues with him. None of that's been reported, so I'm not going to give credence to it until we have documented evidence of real real injuries. Now, we know that Smith's Francisco did miss the end of the season with injury, but there was no intelligence, there's no news that this was anything that would prevent him from playing next year. Um, I do think it's safe to say this is something that I've talked about that ESPN's the ESPN show out of Missoula, Montana, Tutal Nuanas referenced Nate Sherwood as being a guy who would get a medical red shirt next year. I believe based off of the news we've heard out of the Vandal program, which is to not reference Nate Sherwood. I believe that that was likely and, and part of why I gave credence or that I part of the reason why I cited that ESPN show talking about nature would possibly being back is the one who's, who made that statement. Coulter Nuanez, he's a, he's a former reporter. Well, he's a, he's a current reporter. He writes for skyline sports MT, which is his company, but he's, he has a background in reporting and he still does sports reporting. So it's not like he's just a guy talking he, he does research. He does have sources. So I thought if he was saying that, there's a chance he'll come back. But based off of news we've had coming out of the Vandal program at the end of this year, which is to not talk about Naturewood other than to reference that he did not want to be acknowledged on senior night, I think it's safe to say that we can expect Naturewood is not on the team next year unless we hear otherwise, which is just another name that some fans were, were hopeful will be back. You know, that leaves us in the position of we won five games this year, three against Division One teams, and we just lost our most promising score. This connects to a bigger topic that I want to talk about with Vandal Sports that has related to some fan dissatisfaction. Um, and, and this relates to the coaches specifically, both Paul Petrino and Don Verlin. Paul Petrino has one winning season since he's been in Moscow. Um, Don Verlin, to Don Verlin's credit, he just finished a three-year run heading into this year that was the most successful three-year three year run in quite some time for Vandal basketball. But Idaho, though we're a school that it's not news that we have had financial problems recently uh, with the athletic department. Idaho is not a state that funds public education much in the first place. It's not news that money's a problem for Idaho athletics. But our head coaches at the two premier programs, uh, Vandal football and men's basketball. They are immune 
from that problem of not having access to funds. Paul Petrino is the most well-compensated head coach in the big sky by a large margin. His base salary is 446000 Now, there's incentives included in there, too, so he can make in excess of half a million dollars. In FBS money, which is when he signed his contract in his defense, that's not a huge contract, but he is no longer an FBS coach, and he is not going to be an FBS coach in the foreseeable future. So I feel we are entering the time where it is fair to look at the Paul Petrino contract and say, how is he delivering in relation to his peers? Dan Hawkins was the coach of the year in the Big Sky. He was also the national coach of the year in the FCS. He coaches at UC Davis, uh, former Boise State coach, former Colorado Buffalo coach. His base salary is $262,000. He's the second highest paid coach in the conference. So there's around a $175,000 gap between Petrino and the second highest paid coach in terms of their base salary. All these guys have, all coaches have incentives built into their contract, which means their actual pay is different. But that's a $175,000 gap between position one and position two. The other coaches at some of the premier, premier conference programs, Eastern Washington head coach Aaron Best, Base salary, 180000 Bobby Houck, head coach at University of Montana, who has a history of doing exceptionally well at the FCS level back when he hit in his first run at University of Montana. Base salary, $185,000. By the way, the FBS level, because Bobby Houck coached at the FBS level, he was every bit the equal of Paul Petrino in terms of what he did at the UNLV program. He took UNLV to a bowl game in a tougher conference than Paul Petrino took Idaho to a bowl game. Um, UNLV is in the Mountain West. Mountain West is a stronger football conference than the Sun Belt, which is where Idaho was when Paul Petrino took us to a bowl game. But Bobby Houck is now head coach at University of Montana, a program with a much richer history and a program that beat the heck out of us last year at home. Base salary, $185,000. Jeff Choate, head coach of Montana State. Base salary, $180,000. The base salary of Aaron Best, Bobby Houck, and Jeff Choate is almost the gap between the salary of Paul Petrino, the number one paid coach in the conference, and Dan Hawkins, number two paid coach in the conference. That's a huge gap to be to be looking at in terms of coaching compensation. Now let's look at basketball. Travis DeCure, head coach of University of Montana. He's won the league outright the last two years and won an NC2A tournament berth from the conference last two years. So swept winning the regular season and the conference tournament two years in a row. Base salary, $175,000. Jeff Linder, head coach at Northern Colorado. Coach of the year this season. His team finished tied for first place in conference. And, but had the number two seeding in the conference tournament. Base salary, $165,000. Shantae Leggins, head coach of Eastern Washington. His team had, he's guided his team to two consecutive conference tournament runner-up finishes. Base salary, $130,000. Don Verlin, salary. $245,000 around there is the base salary. Now, again, all these coaches have incentives built into their contracts. 
The only coach, only basketball coach in the Big Sky who makes more than Don Verlin is Randy Ray at Weber State. He makes 342 as his base. And Randy Ray has a longer track record of success than, than Don Verlin. What I'm getting at here is in the two major programs that Idaho has, there is dissatisfaction from a real rough season uh, for both teams. Now, some of that dissatisfaction is going to go away if we rebound to the next year. But I feel that with both of these coaches, we are entering a world where fans, alums, can say, we are paying top dollar relative to our conference. Are we getting top dollar performance? Paul Petrino won four games last year. He, he was paid, we paid him $100,000 per win. Now, I don't actually think that's a fair metric. I just use it to, to be kind of simple in understanding how we look at these. Because if Paul Petrino would have won every single game he, that Idaho played, he still would be getting paid a large amount of dollars per win. And we aren't, we coach him to win, but there's a lot of duties the coach has. So I, I don't, I don't actually feel it's fair to look at the per win number um, and assess whether the contract is fair. But Paul Petrino makes almost half a million dollars um, to have one winning season at Idaho. Don Verlin is making base salary $245,000, second best in the league to one, um, have a relatively low ceiling, even when Idaho does well. That's a real frustration fans fans can and should have. But second, our floor, like one of the things about Don Verlin that fans were okay with is that, okay, we've got stability. You know, we have some down seasons once in a while, but at least we're not embarrassing. Man, this was embarrassing. We were real bad this year. You know, our analytic rankings in basketball, we, in sports reference, we finished 344th out of 353 teams. In Chem Palm rankings, we were 348 out of 353. NCAA net ranking, we were 338 out of 353. RPI, we were 344 out of 353. There is no way to cut that and not say we were a bottom 10% team in the nation. Is that, is it fair to look at our program and say, hey, Don, I know that you did well for some seasons, but we, we can't tolerate even once bottom 10 percentile. We don't have the tradition to absorb that. Yeah, I think it's fair. And I think we are re- reaching a point where I don't, I don't like to live in the fanboy world of, hey, you know, if something disappointing happens, you fire the coach. But it's fair at this point for Vandal fans to say, we are paying top dollar relative to our conference rivals, relative to our peers. We are paying our head coaches top dollar. Are we getting top dollar results? And the answer this year was a resounding no. Between football and basketball, we put together five, we put together nine total wins. But if you subtract, counting both football and men's basketball, you subtract non-division one wins. We had three in football and three in basketball. That's six division one wins between a basketball and a football season for a base salary of $691,000, $691,000 between the the base salary of Paul Petrino and Don Verlin for a combined six division one wins. Hey, Bobby Houck had a disappointing season in Missoula. They won six games. There was still a basketball season. Jeff Choate 
grabbed eight wins at Montana State playing a linebacker quarterback. And we haven't talked about basketball. Aaron Best won more games in Eastern Washington during football season than we won in basketball and football combined. So, you know, we're, we're reaching a turning point in, in our programs. You know, we're going to have a new president in a little bit. After that, we're going to have a, a full-time non-interim athletic director. By the way, in the interim role, I think Pete Isaacson is doing everything we could have asked for. We are getting that arena we talked about. Our football season looks great in terms of adding extra home games and adding a good home game in Eastern Washington as a non-conference game when we had that schedule glitch. At the AD level, Pete Isaacson's doing everything we could possibly ask him to do. But we're going to have new leadership at the university. And if you're a fan, I think you need to you need to really be hoping that if these two coaches aren't able to turn something around fast, and I don't mean turn something around towards 500, I mean turn something around and show that we will have the building blocks for real conference success, we're at the point where fans should be thinking, you know what, maybe maybe new names in those positions are not far away. We're going to see, and we have those seasons, we have a new football season to look at first. We have a basketball season that will have some new player faces, no question, next year. That'll dictate what that means. We had unprecedented instability with Chuck Stevens' contact, contract being you know, not renewed, so we knew we were going to have a new president. We also had Rob Spear fired by the uh, State Board of Education uh, due to the Title IX violations. So we had interim AD. This, in a lot of ways, feels like it was kind of a lost year for those two big programs. That instability goes away in not too many months, and that should be good news for Vandal fans who just want there to be a little bit more order to the to the school. And also fans who feel like we're approaching a time where some pages need to be turned. We need the leadership in place, but we're going to be there when these next seasons roll around. And now we're going to transition to a more positive note to close this out. we got to talk about the women's team. And we have to talk about them for good news. Their season's not over. It did look like we might close in disappointment when our women lost in the second round of the Big Sky Tournament. 59 to 75 to Portland State. Now, even though that was a second round, well, actually, it, sorry, it was a semifinal loss. That was a third round loss. It was our second game in the tournament. It felt, it felt like second round because we earned a bye. Um, Idaho beat NAU in the second round of the Big Sky Tournament, which was our first game, 90 to 73. We lost to Portland State, 59 75. Well, Portland State wasn't a bad loss. They ended up winning the conference tournament. There, there was only a game in our conference that separated the top team, Idaho, from fourth place team, Portland State, which means those teams are essentially even. We we just had an awful shooting night against Portland State. Uh, Taylor Pierce, who, you know, all big sky, uh, first team all big sky, one of the best players to ever play for University of Idaho. Taylor Pierce shot 113 that game. Michaela Friends shot 5 of 16. Our top two players combined to shoot six of 29, including three of 21 from behind the arc. It's just hard to beat anyone who's any good when that happens. And it was just an off night. Um, 
you know, it's easy for some basketball fans to see, hear results like that and say, well, you live by a three, you die by, by the three. It's a really dumb saying because what, what are, what John Newley did with this team, he had it perimeter oriented because that's what this team needed to be. And that perimeter, perimeter oriented play won us the conference regular season championship. So obviously he was doing something right. And when people say live by the three, die by the three, they don't talk about the opposite end of that. You know, Idaho State finished number three in in our league. Idaho State plays a slow it down style, kind of the opposite of what John Newley does. Well, Idaho State lost in the second round. They lost their first tournament game to Eastern Washington. And you don't you did not hear a chorus of, well, you live by slowing it down, having awful offensive possessions re being resolved at the end of the shot clock and you die by awful offensive possessions being resolved at the end of the shot clock. People kind of do that with three point shots and it's dumb because the evolution of basketball is to shoot more threes and play more wide open. And John Newley knows that and does that. So our C our big sky season ended with a loss to Portland state because we won our conference. The women were invited to the women's NIT we opened at Loyola Marymount, a road game. Loyola Marymount's out of the West Coast Conference, which is considered a better basketball conference overall than the Big Sky. We play the game at Loyola Marymount. Suffice it to say, Taylor Pierce recovered from her rough game at Portland State. Taylor Pierce led us in scoring, scored, scored 24 points, shooting 7 of 18 from the field. Lizzie Klinker added 24 points as well, going 9 to 15, including 15 rebounds. Michaela Ferenz rebounded to score 15 points, though low efficiency night, took 16 shots to get there, but she also grabbed eight rebounds, dished out six assists. Idaho's women won 79-64. Big, big deal for us because if our men's team won an NIT game, you would hear people like me be ecstatic. Well, you know what? You should be ecstatic that our women won a first-round NIT game against a solid Loyola Marymount team because we won. That meant we, we got to host our next game. So the university of Idaho hosted a non, a, a postseason game that wasn't a tertiary tournament. Like the men have hosted a CIT or CBI game. One of the other, one of those two tournaments, no one actually cares about our men hosted those. Our women hosted a women's NIT tournament. Now our men, you should be, I would be happy if our men earned, an NIT invitation. So I'm happy that our women earned that too. I'm happy they showed success. And in that home game played at Memorial gym, because the Kibbe dome, the count spectrum has gone. Now it's back to the, to the Kibbe dome Foot, football season began. We talked about that in Memorial gym in front of 1,230 fans, but the atmosphere, cause Mem gym was smaller meant that was electric. Our women blew out Denver university of Denver. 88 to 66 leading the way for us. Michaela Ferenz scores 33 points in her last game in Moscow, adding five rebounds. Taylor Pierce scores 16 going five of 12 from three and Gina Markson freshman of the year in conference scored 16 as well. Picked up six assists. Big news for Idaho. We should be ecstatic for our women's team. And this is a hot take side note for me. I don't know if there's title nine concerns, about our women playing in a different basketball facility than the men. I really wish all our women's games were played in Memorial gym. First off Memorial gym. I just like it better than the Cowan spectrum. The Cowan spectrum is fine. You know, it's a D it's a D plus environmentally. And for our men, 
we probably need more seats. But for the women with what they draw, Memorial Gym gives a much better in-game atmosphere. I would be ecstatic for our women if all of their games were played there and the likelihood of turning that real that home court advantage into a real into a real home court advantage that other teams have prepped for. I would love if we could do that. Maybe we can in the future. I don't know. But the good news is our women in front of 1,230 people, which in Mem Gym is a very nice crowd, came up with a 22-point win. They will play their next game Thursday, March 28th at the University of Arizona in the McHale Center in Tucson. University of Arizona is going to be the favorite in that game because they're a they're, you know, Pac-12, Power 5 team. But our, our women's season is still going. People should be ecstatic about our women's team. Now, if you're listening and you're thinking, well, Brian, you just spent an hour talking about the other sports and not the women's sports. I will give you that. Um, maybe that's something that I need to pay attention to. Now, I, I do know that the initial plan for me was to only cover the men's team, and that's what I did was cover the men's team. But our, our women are – our women's basketball – is of the you know major sports of football and basketball, our women's team is no question the most solid program. John Newley is probably, relative to his peers, the best coach that is employed by the University of Idaho, the guy who's had the most sustained success. I will be happy, and I, I will continue to be happy, that we got John Newley away from Idaho State, and I'll be happy every single year that premier coach stays in Moscow. So congratulations to the women's team. Two big postseason wins that are, if our men did this, we'd be just unbelievably happy about. We'd be talking about how this portends great things in the future. Now our women do graduate some players. So it's some big players. So it's good for them to get a send off of having postseason success. And that season continues Thursday, March 28th, University of Arizona. The game tips off at 6.30 p.m. I want to thank everyone for downloading. Thank you for following Tubbs at the Club. We'll continue to give updates as we have news. I'm not going to give basketball updates every week anymore because the basketball season is over. But as we have events take place, as we have news to comment on, you guys are going to hear from us. Feel free to contact us at Twitter at Tubbs at the Club or just me personally at Brian Marceau. You can also just send the hashtag AskTATC and go and send us questions, send us comments, anything you want to in terms of stuff you wish we would cover. It's all on the table. But I'm shifting my sights now to after hearing how the women's team does and following the recruiting trail You know, as we get news for the men's team. We're back in football season, guys. It's almost April. The spring game is April 19th. I recommend heading out to Moscow if you can to go get a glimpse of what what our team looks like when playing each other. But um, we're hitting the lull in terms of Big Sky content from us. So we're, we'll still have some recruitment updates like Chris just had one this week with, with, with Alex Boatman from the Kicking It podcast. If you haven't listened to that, make sure to download. Otherwise, just follow us on on Twitter. We'll send you the updates. Thanks for downloading. Glad to have you guys as listeners. 
and as always. <laughs>